If you're new with us today, we're especially glad to welcome you. My name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church, and I look forward to welcoming many of you back this coming Christmas Eve as well, along with friends and relatives, neighbors, colleagues. Please bring those along with you to one of those three services. Today, we're reaching the, the culmination of this series we're doing in Advent called A Weary World Rejoices. Uh, there is, of course, uh, sorrow, and there is anxiety, there is restlessness, there is grief. All of these things weigh heavily through the ages on hearts, but we feel them most acutely and most especially in these last couple of years. We've all had countless conversations with family, with friends, we've altered holiday plans. There's so many things which have weighed in upon us. But in the middle of it all, there is that second word, rejoices. And one of the matchless truths of the Christian faith is that there is joy that is found in the darkest and most sorrowful moment. It is at that moment in history that God himself came to be with us, to be Emmanuel, God with us, this light entering the darkness. He does this in hearts, and we looked at that last week. In Matthew, Levi Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus saw him in his tax booth, and he went to him in the middle of that life that was so broken. He didn't say, if you'll get out of that tax booth and clean yourself up, then, then maybe we can have a conversation. Now, Jesus went right to him in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the weariness, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of every ounce of brokenness that was in that man's life. And he said to him, what he says to each of us today, come and follow me. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. He became this man that was on the margins, this man that was despised, a man that many wanted dead. This man became one of the apostles of Jesus. And years later, years later, he sat down to write the story. He wrote the story of how his life was changed. And not only how his life was changed, but how the whole world was changed by the mercy of Almighty God that comes to us in our darkness. And he wrote it beginning with this story that we celebrate, that the children sang about just a few moments ago, the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to read with you today Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to pick this up in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was said by the Lord, spoken through the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning for your goodness, and we pray that the same Holy Spirit who conceived the body of Jesus in the womb of Mary, who inspired Matthew to write these words, would inscribe them now in our hearts and minds so that by the grace of God, we might come to believe them and to live them. And we thank you for this in Jesus' matchless and mighty name. Amen. One of the reasons I particularly love this time of year is because it gives us a chance to deal with the supernatural dimension of our faith. We live in a time of rising secularism, of presuppositions about the nature of reality that are deeply anti-supernatural. If you're at the university campus or in many schools or in many professions, the assumption about the nature of reality is one that is rooted in an historical materialist view. And the historical materialist view says that human beings, every single human being, emerges from history. It is a closed system, and every person simply emerges in history. No one can enter history from the outside. No one can come from the outside in. This is a closed system. But did you hear what Joseph encountered in his dream? Joseph, you know that Mary's expecting. And I want to remind you that you do not have an historical materialist worldview, Joseph. <laughs> the angel said to him, you have a supernatural worldview. You see, a supernatural worldview says that the universe that we inhabit is not a closed system, that it is porous, and that there is a movement between the realm that fashioned our realm and back and forth the angels go, and at one point, God himself entered our realm as one of us. The creator entered the creation and took upon himself the frame of the creation that he had formed. How could the infinite become contracted to the span of Mary's womb. That is the mystery, the conception, the birth of Jesus Christ that we're dealing with here in this season. 
It is the greatest miracle that has ever been recorded, and that makes Jesus like no one else. Now, when we begin to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, many people are offended. Why do you say that this faith is different than all other faiths? There are many religions in the world. Well, there are really only two religions in the world. There is the religion of if God is viewed as an infinite and personal God and you are to come to be accepted by him, if you will simply follow these steps and do this and this and this, then eventually he may accept you. That's a religion of works and performance. You have to build a resume, and you have to hope that when you submit your resume at the gates of heaven, that your resume will be looked upon with favor, and they will say, you've got the job. That is resume religion. Christian faith is completely different. Christian faith is utterly and totally different because Christian faith says not go and do in order that you may be saved, It says, God has acted to save you. And you are given the gift of eternal life, not as a reward for what you've achieved, but simply and freely as a gift to be received. That is the religion of grace. It's precisely the opposite. But of course... All people, even those who are secularists, can't deny the influence, the uniqueness of Jesus. Because as soon as they would say, well, of course, you know, there's many religions and this religion of grace, you know, but but they can't do away with the uniqueness of Jesus. Religious historian Huston Smith said, there are only two religious figures in all of human history that inspired this question. This question was asked of them, what are you? What are you? When Buddha was asked that question, he answered, I am awake. When Jesus was asked that question, he replied, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus was unapologetic about his own uniqueness, and even contemporary atheists like Richard Dawkins have to admit that. Dawkins, in an interview with The Guardian a couple of years ago, said Jesus was perhaps the most intelligent person who ever walked the earth. And if he were living in our day, he was so smart that he would be an atheist. (laughs) Everybody wants Jesus on their team. Because Jesus is just good and smart. So who wouldn't want him? even if you don't believe in him. There's a kind of arrogance that goes with modernity that says these poor people living 2,000 years ago didn't really get how babies were conceived. But now that we're in a largely scientific age, we've got it figured out. (laughs) They knew how children were conceived, And that's why when Joseph saw that this woman to whom he was betrothed was expecting, and he knew how babies were conceived, and he knew he wasn't the father, he knew that he had a couple of options, and one was to hand her over to the authorities. Because in that culture, what she had done was not only an act of 
relational infidelity. It was an act of criminal behavior. But Joseph, being a righteous man, decided to put her away quietly. He didn't want to add shame to her family. And that's what he determined to do. He was going to do as far as he could tell the right thing. He was, as far as he knew, moving the right direction. And you could imagine that night as he laid down to sleep, his heart broken. You could imagine Mary sleepless somewhere wondering what would become of her hadn't the angel made promises. But that same angel that had appeared to her sometime before now appears to Joseph in a dream. And Joseph had the worst night's sleep ever recorded in the Bible. What do you mean? What are you saying? I'm telling you, Joseph. The child in Mary's womb is conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. And this child is the answer to all the prophets' anticipation across the centuries. And so don't be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary and make her your wife. And he shared with Joseph that night the mission of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. And I want to draw your attention to it, the mission of Jesus. Joseph, when this baby is born, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We read that passage and we can very easily just go right past it. We're so familiar with the name of Jesus and we're so familiar, aren't we, with the idea that Jesus has come to, to save people from their sins. We are so familiar with those lines that we don't give it a second thought. We can't begin to enter into the world of the people who first heard that message for whom it first began to sink in. It was an astonishing message. Joseph, call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. You see, if the angel had simply said, he will come and save his people. Save could have meant and did mean in their time something that was medical or something that was political. The word sozo, to save, or soteria, salvation, was a medical term. If a person had a broken body, a disease that couldn't be healed, and they were made well, they were made whole, they were saved. There's a woman in Mark chapter 5, she's described as suffering from an issue of blood. And she is unhealed for 12 years. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she is made well. And Jesus says to her daughter, don't be afraid, your faith has made you whole. Or in the King James Version, your faith has saved you. That's the way that word was used. If somebody was broken in their heart or broken in their body, and then they got put back together, they'd been, well, they'd been saved. It was medical. There was also a political usage. Rome said soteria was available through the state. Jesus was born, it says, during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus had coins made to commemorate 
his rule, his kingdom. And on those coins were emblazoned these words, Caesar Augustus, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Does that ring a bell? It should. If you've heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost, Peter, a little bit later than the day of Pentecost, in Acts 4, he says, there is no other name under heaven that can be saved, by which we can be saved in the name of Jesus. When Jesus is born, he arrives not only as a threat to Herod, but as a rebuke to statist power that says the state will save you, politics will save you. Whatever our physical conditions may be and whatever help medicine may offer, and it's great and thank God it is, and whatever aid the state may offer and often it's needed or defense and security it may provide and thank God for it, we as human beings did not need something that was merely physical or something that was political. The greatest need of humankind was not medical. The greatest need of humankind is not political. The greatest need of humankind is spiritual. And that's why the angel said when he's born, he will save his people from their sins. Not just from their sicknesses, not just from wicked political leaders, not just from dominating tyrants. He will save us from the thing from which we need the most deliverance from sins. Now, sin is a very unpopular concept today. It's unpopular for a lot of reasons. Number one, if you start talking about sin, people go, ah, we don't talk that way on Oprah. Okay, that's not where we go. We're not dealing with that. But also because we live in a time, listen to this, where no one wants to take responsibility for anything. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. We were listening. We heard this. We, there's this ad on the radio right now. And I, 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 won't, I won't say which internet company it's for, but here's the ad. If you're in your gaming chair and you got your game on and you're playing with other people and you lose... It's not your fault. You have a poor internet connection. You need us to have speed you up. Then you'd be a winner, not a loser. <laughs> it's as though we live in a time where we would not say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. We would say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a, a miscalculator. The reason I'm in trouble is because I have a bad internet connection. Look, if that guy who's losing in his big gaming chair got the fastest interconnection, he, internet connection, he would just lose faster. That's all that would happen. He would, he would lose quicker. The fact of the matter is the problems that we face, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And what's down inside of us at the core of our being is dealt with by the fact that Jesus has come, born of a virgin, because he is God and man, 100% God and 100% man, together, both of those natures unified in a single person, because we need a man who will be the representative for us and pay the price for the sins we've all committed and we need a God who actually has the authority to forgive the sins we've committed. Only a human could pay the price of human sins. And only God could forgive the sins that have been committed. And so God and man show up on the bloody floor of a manger. 
Joseph, call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. His name means, and it's the only time in the Bible where the apostles talk to us about what his name means. This is it. His name means something. He's named for his mission. In Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner receives his name because of what he does as he's observed by others. But Jesus is not named by others because of what he does. His name is given him at his birth because of the mission that's been entrusted to him. And his mission is to die. Did you see all these beautiful children up here this morning? They were beautiful. And maybe you've had conversations with some of them. Maybe you're a parent or a grandparent. And uncle, what are you going to be when you grow up? What do you want to be? And you have dreams and aspirations and hopes for them. They're your children. They're your beloved. And you would look with alarm if any one of those children looked back at you and said, I was born to die. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. No child, no child in history has ever been born this way. No child in history ever entered our story with this mission. I want to grow up and give my life away so that all of you who hate me can live. You see, the scriptures say that a good man might die for his friends. A good man might die for the righteous. But what kind of love is it that causes a person to die for the enemies who are nailing him to the cross and looks upon them and says, I forgive you? You see, that's what Jesus came with. It's that kind of mercy. This is how God forgives us. This is the mercy of Jesus to us. And there is, this means there is no aspect of our humanity. Because he becomes fully man, there is no aspect of our humanity that isn't touched. Our intellectual life, our emotional life, our volitional life. There isn't any aspect of who we are as human beings which is left untouched by the incarnational mercy of God. Not a single aspect of our life is left untouched. And there is no aspect of creation which is outside the scope of God's mercy and grace. When Jesus comes to save, he comes to save us completely, and he comes to renovate the entire universe. The one who created the entire universe will be hung upon a tree, hanging between heaven and earth. He will bear the weight of all of the sins of the world so that the whole cosmos can be healed. How does he do this? Through his mission. He will save his people from their sins. What does it mean to save people from their sins? Well, in a word, it's forgiveness. Now, there's more to it than that, but time is limited. Some of you are laughing nervously. I want to talk to you just about the forgiveness aspect. How does God forgive? How does God forgive sin? He forgives our sin freely. God forgives our sin freely. The psalmist put it this way. I will forgive your sins 
and I will cast them as far away as the east is from the west. He does it freely. God comes and takes the initiative. He does not wait for us to say, do you see all that I've done to achieve a certain level of sophistication, holiness, religious observance? Would you stand at the foot of the cross and say, that's nice, Jesus. I appreciate all you're doing right there. Here's my part. No, you stand at the foot of the cross in front of the man wearing the crown of thorns and his side opened by a Roman spear and his hands and his feet pierced. And when you see that man there, when you see that man there, you are seeing what Christmas was about. Because he was born in order to freely forgive and deliver us. And when he died there, he paid the price there for every sin we've ever committed past present, and future. A friend of mine was in a store in San Francisco, and he wanted to buy a present for his daughter. And she had asked for a cross necklace, a little cross necklace. That's what she wanted for Christmas. And so he went into the store, and he went to the counter, and he said to the man behind the counter, I would like to buy a small cross with a chain for my daughter for Christmas. And he said to her, would you like a plain one or one with a little man on it? <laughs> one with a little man on it. You see, you see, people have forgotten. People have forgotten they see mangers, they see angels, they see wreaths, they see trees, they see lights, and thank God for every bit of it. I'm into every single bit of it and then some, okay? I'm for putting up the lights in July and leaving them on through June, okay? <laughs> all right, I'm all for it, okay? Don't get me wrong, but what's happened is a lot of people, when it comes to the cross, don't know what it's there for, and they don't know who the little man is. They don't know his name. Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God not only freely forgives us, he lavishly forgives us. He lavishes forgiveness upon us. Paul put it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, the sins that we've committed have been imputed or transferred, the full weight of them have been transferred to Christ. And the full righteousness, the perfection that belongs to Jesus Christ, has been transferred completely over to us. This is a lavish forgiveness. This is not a partial forgiveness. This is not a forgiveness unless you blow it again. This is not a try to do better next time. Christianity does not offer you a second chance. Christian faith offers a new birth. Christianity does not say do better. Christianity does not begin with a big do. It begins with a big done. It begins with a baby's cry in a manger, and it ends with that infant, now adult cry on the cross saying it is finished. Forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. 
God forgives freely and lavishly. God forgives eternally, eternally. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, I will forgive their sins and I will remember them no more. I'm not going to, what manner of love forgets the wrongs we have done? You're going to have relatives around the table, and some of them you're going to be looking at as you, you pass some stuff their way, and you're going to be going, I forgive it, but I'll never forget it. <laughs> I forgive you, but I'll never forget it. That's the way we're going to look at somebody. That's, we can't help it. We remember, but God in his mercy not only forgives he forgets. You can confess your sins and you should confess your sins, but you can go to God a couple of weeks later and say, you remember that stuff I did? And God's going to say, what stuff? I will remember your sins no more. No more. It is free. It is lavish. It is eternal. You see, there are two kinds of deceptions that get involved with us when it comes to forgiveness. In the first one, the devil will come to you and say, you don't need any forgiveness. You don't have any sins. You're not that bad. Just compa- you're, you're, you know, That preacher, he's, he, he's not being very nice to you today. He should be doing tidings of comfort and joy and giving you three points in a poem, make him laugh, make him cry in 20 minutes, say goodbye, and here he is getting on your case about sin. I mean, you're not that bad. I mean, just look over there. I mean, if you're sitting right there, you could say, look, the devil could go, look over there, look at that. You know how bad he is. You don't need this. That's one kind of deception, and it is deception. But there's a second kind of deception. It's the kind of deception that comes along after you've been in the faith, and you begin to realize how deep sin is in your own heart. And the enemy whispers, do you see all those other people? They're forgiven, but you're not. You're not. You're too big a mess. If anybody knew that you struggled with that temptation, that addiction, if you ever really owned who you really were, those people, those people would reject you. Those people don't. And here's, and and, and God doesn't want you either. The devil will lie to the non-believer and say, you don't need this. The devil will lie to the believer and say, you can't have it. But both of those lies are silenced by the cross, by the man who is hanging there, who says to the person, I don't need it. If you didn't need it, I wouldn't be hanging here. And to the person who says, I can't have it, he says to them, do you see me hanging here? I'm hanging here for you. And it is finished. And you are free. And it's forever. I came to save you from your sins, and I'm not going to leave it half done. What I started in you, I'm going to finish. There isn't any part of you I won't save. There isn't any moment of eternity I don't want you with me in. I have come to save you, and in my mission, I will not be defeated. You are part of my mission to save. I am saving you. I have saved you, and I will save you. You are my beloved. That is what happens when you come to the foot of the cross. And that's why, that's why finally the forgiveness of God is given sacrificially. Next, next week, there'll be presents, gifts under a tree. Why do we, why do we 
drag trees into our houses. That's the craziest stuff ever, isn't it? I mean, if you did that any other time of the year, what are you doing, honey? I just thought I'd drag a tree into the house over here. And I, I think it would be really cool if we hung some lights on it. Wouldn't, what do you think? Have you lost your mind? But we drag a tree into the house, and then we put presents under it, and we open gifts that are under a tree. And it's important that we do that because it's under a tree. It's under a tree that the most important gift of all is opened. Because to give us this forgiveness, it costs Jesus everything. And the blood on the ground in the manger was a prophecy of the blood on the ground at Calvary. And the greatest gift you can open this year is the gift of God's free and lavish and eternal and costly forgiveness and to relish in it and to look at this scene in the manger and to know that God gave us in his son what we needed most when we did not know it was what we most needed. My friends, if you're a believer in Jesus today, you're forgiven. And if you haven't yet come to believe in Jesus, you need him. Because no matter how long you live and how healthy you are, no matter how far you go, how wealthy, how educated, the greatest need of the human heart is to know the forgiving mercy of God. Because only the blood of Jesus can remove the stain that's in the soul and change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you did not send a politician. I thank you that you did not send a general. I thank you that you did not send a professor. I thank you that you did not send an attorney. I thank you that you did not send a, a chef. You sent a savior. You sent the only one who could take away our sins and heal every affliction we've ever known. And so now I pray for those in this space who may have felt the gripping lies of darkness, telling them they don't need the Savior. Would you please remove that deception so that they see their need? And I pray for those who've been lied to, telling them that everybody can have it but you. You're not good enough. No, Lord, we're so bad. Lord, we thank you. I pray for those who have felt that lie. I pray you deliver them and remind them that as they look upon the cross, they look upon perfect mercy and forgiveness. And that they would delight in you and rejoice in you. And stop thinking for even a second that anything they have done is bigger than what you have done. For what you have done is greater. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Let's all stand together, shall we?